Did you know that in 2020, according to CNBC, sustainability investing reached $17.1 trillion? That's 33% of the total assets under management in the United States. This is the Lovers of Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Gio. Today's guest is Jeremy McDaniels, Senior Policy Advisor in Sustainable Finance at the Institute of International Finance. Jeremy has a great interest in how society interacts with media and data from his days as a student in the University of British Columbia. This has evolved into trying to understand how investors interact with sustainability data from the financial sector. Season 3 is brought to you by a generous grant from the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship at the Said Business School, Oxford University. If you're new to this podcast, please don't forget to subscribe. Now, let us listen to how Jeremy navigates his multiple backgrounds in creating everlasting change. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much, Jimmy. Really happy to be with you. So in looking through some of your work and some of your bio, I saw that in your college careers, you did a year abroad at the University of Copenhagen in geography and media studies. Perhaps what's your favorite movie, but also beyond just movies, media is such a broad aspect. What's your favorite media? Well, those are very interesting and very broad questions. So I think I will, I will take the easiest one first. I would say that I'm someone that has always been interested in how society is interacting with information. I think the initial focus on media studies was something that emerged from that kind of interest in how society is, is interacting with the media. Quite specifically on favorite movies, I can say there's definitely many from a kind of science and technology perspective. Definitely have to put Blade Runner up there. That's probably an obvious classic. At the University of Copenhagen, I spent quite a long time engaging with some of the, the Danish film industry. It's definitely a, it's a country which punches far above its weight in terms of media output. So I can definitely recommend some, some Nordic films and directors there. And, and for a good laugh, I'm going to have to put up the Big Lebowski just for its classic <laughs> script and sardonic wit, which is something that everyone needs a little bit of a dose of when you're working on something as complex and challenging as fun. Absolutely. And when you talk about the Danish media, it's not just the the written word or, or the visual arts, but it's also the design work, the sculpting, the arts, and so on and so forth. That human design interface is very much a term of art these days, but yet we can also think of human society interface through these digital interactions, digital structures. When it comes to sustainability, that's how we interact with all of these data and all these reporting mechanisms is becoming incredibly important. And incredibly timely. Indeed. I mean, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, I'm currently here in Copenhagen. It's amazing to see how the city has transformed since I was here coming up on 15 years ago and, and just seeing how the transformation to sustainability has really been put into practice. You know, wind farms have expanded. There are you know, waste energy plants being built and a whole bunch of really uh, amazing design innovations. But I think Quite importantly, it gives you a view of sort of how these you know, future issues may manifest in, in countries where there are you know, a wider range of political views on climate. So, for instance, here are some of the biggest questions that pertain to greenwashing are whether or not the biomass plant is truly delivering on sustainability or whether or not it, it should be not seen as such. 
It's great you get such of a global view of these issues. How would you frame sustainable finance as you're trying to move the world towards net zero goals? Sustainable finance ultimately is now really just, you know, to, to quote Miles Davis, starting to understand what it sounds like in its own voice. It, it is an agenda which has evolved very substantially over the past decade and is broadening across sectors, across markets, across asset classes, and also deepening very substantially in terms of technical approaches. We could envision kind of sustainable finance version 1.0 as everything leading up to the Paris Agreement. So the initial focus on ethical imperatives in investment and the management of risks in banking sector and outside in view. We're really now you know, pushing through kind of version 2.0 and into version 3.0, where there's a much clearer recognition of the need for a dual materiality view of, of how the financial sector is, is interacting with the real economy. I mean, maybe just a few comments on, on how this transition has evolved. And when I came to Oxford to pursue my graduate studies at the School of Geography and Environment, it was really just at the very beginnings of the work of the Smith School on what has then turned out to be a very vibrant program on sustainable finance. And the focus at the time was really on stranded assets. So what assets may lose value or experience significant you know, devaluation as a result of both the impacts of climate change, but also the transition in terms of responses to climate change. That entire agenda, alongside the work of other entities like you know, Carbon Tracker and the initial uh, work of, of a number of other you know, NGOs based in London, really helped to create this sort of hub of expertise that have eventually ended up moving the entire market, really, on, on this agenda. As we look forward, the debate on stranded assets and you know, broader climate transition risk is now really becoming material. This is where we are seeing you know, significant devaluations in certain sectors, the introduction of really clear policy instruments that will phase out different technologies in the economy. So those types of, of things that we were discussing and forecasting about 10 years ago in terms of the introduction of policy measures, you know, looking beyond carbon prices are really now coming into play. Could you spend a little bit of time elaborating on what materiality means. Materiality from a finance definition is slightly different than from an accounting definition, which might be different from a sustainability definition. So when you think of materiality, what do you, what are you implying? As you just alluded to, there are quite a range of views on what materiality really means, what is material from a financial institution perspective. And, and this varies quite significantly across jurisdiction. And this divergence in terms of both the material risk to a financial institution and how you know, climate or environmental factors may create or exacerbate those types of risks, as opposed to the view of the materiality of impact of a financial institution's strategy and capital allocation, more of an inside-out view. This difference is, is really kind of at the heart of where we're seeing some quite lively debate on how uh, frameworks for sustainable finance should develop. Within the U.S., there are very substantial kind of legal sensitivities around disclosures. At the same time, you know, we are seeing really substantial uh, progress and great ambition from entities like the European Commission to set out 
disclosure frameworks that are much more granular and looking in greater detail at a wider range of risks and impacts. And so kind of coming to a middle ground on these issues to kind of bridge this this transatlantic divide is, is going to be really, really critical. Yep. Why don't you tell us a little bit first about the Institute for International Finance? What is its purpose, its goals? And then what is your role within IIF and how do you interact with the finance sector? Sure. Well, the IIF is the Global Association for the Financial Sector. So we have approximately 450 members from 70 countries. We bring together the global financial sector to advocate for the development of sound policies and regulatory frameworks, promote market development, and uh, reduce the potential for systemic risk to, to evolve. In a sustainable finance perspective, the IIF is seeking to advocate for the development of clear global frameworks that can reduce the risk of fragmentation in this rapidly evolving space. So I think we really see a need for consistent and, where possible, harmonized approaches across jurisdictions. And I think this this question of reducing fragmentation is really clearly linked to the overarching objective of scaling up capital flows across markets. And then when we are starting to look from a sustainable finance perspective, we're seeing that, of course, there's a huge amount of energy on setting policy frameworks in different markets. There is definitely an evolving uh, debate at the international level through the work of both the formal standard setting uh, sphere, the G20, the Financial Stability Board, Basel Committee, the IIS, but also this really rapidly evolving network of coalitions that are bringing together institutions to collaborate in parallel to that process. The goal of, of trying to promote uh, alignment and consistency here is, is ultimately really to drive uh, capital flows towards more sustainable outcomes. When we are looking at the market, I think it's critical to recognize that greening in one country alone is not anything close to enough to deliver on climate goals. Being a global challenge and requiring global solutions uh, inherently requires some degree of global capital flows. In my role at the IIF, I support the Sustainable Finance Working Group, which is our member working group of around 200 individuals from you know, across the entire spectrum, private sector and public sector. In that working group, we deliver a number of different types of collaborative projects on topics such as disclosure, scenario analysis, trying to work through what needs to be standardized and where the market can really drive solutions that can be ultimately the most decision useful for public sector, users of, of information and stakeholders and investors, and also financial institutions uh, themselves. Let me pick up a couple of points that you mentioned. First off, the risk of fragmentation of sustainability globally. How do you think of the fragmentation of sustainability versus being specific or the specificity of sustainability within each financial subsector? When we look at a hedge fund versus insurance versus a central bank, each one has different roles, but also has different roles within the sustainability journey. What do you mean by fragmentation that you're trying to avoid? And then counterpart, is there a monolithic sustainability goal or are there specific sustainability goals for each finance function? Sure. Great questions. The most important issue that we are addressing with respect to this risk of fragmentation is significant differences in the 
policy and regulatory frameworks that are being put in place to guide the financial sector towards delivering against the needs of a, a sustainable economy and transition. These frameworks and instruments can be on the risk side. So they could be looking at the disclosure of information by financial institutions. They could be looking at questions of prudential standards that certain institutions need to meet. And they could be also looking at questions of the responsibilities of different institutions with respect to their fiduciary duties. But they could also be on the opportunity side in terms of standards for products. And now where we're seeing really significant development is in frameworks to codify what is green in the economy in the form of taxonomies. So if we have really significant divergence in disclosure requirements, it's going to be very, very hard for financial institutions to get a view of the risks that they're facing across jurisdictions. The Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, or TCFD, uh, recommendations that were initially released in, in 2017 have played a really, really critical role in driving consistency. So we are seeing that there is a global framework in place. This emerged as a market-led initiative, and the numbers of firms that are now signatories to that are really continuing to increase. Where we are seeing the potential for fragmentation emerging is in how public authorities are seeking to kind of take those recommendations and put them into practice. So even when a suggestion is made that TCFD disclosure should be mandatory around the world, what is mandatory is really not consistent. So there are many aspects of, of the TCFD framework are not that clearly defined. And there are a number of areas where practice is still evolving, including in some very important areas like forward-looking metrics for climate risks. Having you know, significant divergence in those types of requirements can be can be really challenging, even though it may appear simple to say there is a framework TCFD implemented and whatnot. Looking at the rapidly evolving area of, of taxonomies, here we can see that there are a few jurisdictions that are really clearly in the lead. So, you know, the first jurisdiction to implement a formal taxonomy instrument was the People's Bank of China with their Green Bond Project Catalog. That was put in place alongside a number of market standards to really kind of clarify what types of financial products can be seen as green. The European Union's work has really focused on what sectors of the economy should be considered as green. I think now we've just come to the end of a, a multi-year process and the delegated act on, on taxonomy is, is, is now advancing through the legislative process. Looking across all of that work, we now have a really clearly delineated framework of different environmental objectives, different thresholds, a clear understanding that Progress on one objective cannot be at the expense of you know, detriments on others, the sort of do no significant harm principle. This framework is, is now being implemented. However, there are a number of really quite challenging issues that uh, the financial institutions are encountering in terms of applying this to their, to their balance sheet, applying this to their investments and, and credit and lending decisions. Sorry, let me just get a couple of clarifications in there. We've talked about taxonomy standards and disclosures. And could you describe the functions of each one of those three? Because they do, they have different roles within sustainable finance or within finance specifically. Indeed, they do. And, and I think even though they are probably the, the newest addition to this canon of instruments, taxonomies, we can see are, are really at the core of the infrastructure that is evolving. We could envision that 
taxonomy is set the framework for what can be you know, considered green or, or, or not green. And this can then help guide uh, disclosures of information on uh, how financial institutions' portfolios may be uh, aligned to what degree their financing is green or not green. Looking at disclosure, you know, the primary function here is just ensuring that there is adequate transparency around risks and opportunities that financial institutions may be facing and, and how they are acting on it. And, and here, really, the TCFD has played a really critical role in bringing some consistency around how that information uh, is, is disclosed and uh, how it can be most effectively used. Finally, discussing you know, prudential standards, this is... These are really in place, are, are, are really put in place to you know, reduce the potential for risk to build up at either a micro prudential level, so at the level of individual firms, whether or not they are taking on risk in, in a manageable way, but also looking at the entire financial system level, whether or not there may be risks that are building up across sectors or between sectors that could have the potential for really significant disruptions. In a climate context, we're seeing that. All of these different instruments can in some way be oriented towards ensuring that uh, risks and opportunities from the climate transition can be adequately addressed. The biggest sea change in the thing that we've seen over the last couple of years is, is the recognition that climate risks being long-term in nature, having global uh, impacts, involving quite significant uncertainty, affecting the entire economy, affecting all of society, it's going to be impossible for any financial institution to completely get away from climate risk. doesn't matter how big you are. doesn't matter what sectors you are servicing. And so there is a, a clear imperative for regulatory bodies and, and standard setters who are charged with ensuring the stability of, of the economy to consider how these risks could evolve and crystallize. I think a shift from uh, seeing climate change as a kind of external long-term risk that may transpire in the future to an understanding and clearly reflecting science that climate change is here and now. The impacts are mounting. The potential for very you know, significant disruptions is, is real and, and therefore Financial institutions are, are thinking about these risks appropriately, orienting their strategies in a way uh, that does not you know, exacerbate or create the opportunity for large-scale disruptions to transpire. Yeah, it reminds me of best practices in problem solving, which is you take this really big, hairy problem and you break it down to smaller problems that are much more manageable. When we think of climate change with a 30, 50, 80-year problem statement, how do we break it down into something that's very manageable, tangible, that I can act on tomorrow? We have to take all of these different components to be able to break them down into smaller and smaller components. And so if, if I were to reflect back what I heard, taxonomy is basically the definition of what is green. It's the definition of it. The disclosure is then the information from the companies and the corporates that are generating data to signify if they're green or not, if they're hitting the green goals versus the non-green goals. And then the standards becomes the regulatory, the prudentials, the prudence essentially of are you on track? Are you hitting what you said you hit? Are we hitting where the, the world has said we need to be in order to achieve these green futures? Well, I think that the last point you raised is very interesting. And that is, I think, really at the forefront of supervisory and regulatory thinking at the current moment. You know, what should be the role of central banks and supervisors on topics such as net zero portfolio alignment, for instance. There's quite a divergence of views here. 
we see that the entire net zero agenda is is really now coming into play as setting that long-term time-bound goal linking to the findings of the IPCC on, on a 1.5 degree trajectory, and then translating that into kind of a strategic pathway with specific milestones at different intervals. I think it's clear there are a number of, of important timelines at which supervisors may have an interest in trying to evaluate uh, how the industry as a whole or individual firms are, are making progress. So if we think about the pathway towards 2050, towards net zero, I mean, definitely this is far beyond the traditional horizon of most central banks and supervisors that are looking just you know, a few years ahead. It's also beyond the time frame of most financial institutions when they are seeking to develop and set strategies. So trying to orient towards that long-term goal needs some intermediary steps and, and intervals. And I think the next one at the end of this decade, a 50% reduction of emissions uh, by 2030 is, is really now emerging as the key focus for financial institutions. How can this be achieved from a portfolio decarbonization perspective? You know, what structures should be in place to monitor progress here? And you know, how can risks be effectively managed as the you know, economy as a whole shifts in response to the introduction of new types of, of policy instruments, increasing ambition uh, across the economy? One of the ways to look at moving parts is the different global geographies. And you mentioned how different countries might have different regulatory regimes, prudential regimes, regulations, so on and so forth. What are some of the challenges of those global complexities that you think can be simplified for sustainable purposes? Looking at the physical impacts of climate change, the, the question of geographic differentiation you know, really comes to the fore, both across different countries and also within countries. I think here, the focus on a forward-looking view of risks at quite a kind of granular geographic level is emerging as, as the kind of key next step from an analytical perspective. However, it's very difficult to simplify across jurisdictions in, in this area, not least because climate risks are, are going to manifest very, very differently depending on the type of hazard that you may be looking at, depending on adaptive capacity or adaptive interventions that may have been implemented at a very local level. I mean, this translates into whether or not certain types of quite granular measures taken by individual homeowners can reduce the likelihood of their home being significantly damaged in a fire or a flood. And that could then feed up to questions of the you know, threshold effects of, of different types of resilience infrastructure, seawalls, things of this nature. Then looking at kind of real economy, financial sector interconnections, there is a, a question of the degree of concentration of, of assets that may be held by financial institutions in a specific geography that may be subject to, to different risks, and, and also diversification across jurisdictions and across sectors. And so looking on the ground, I think it's worthwhile to note that even though there is significant concern about the physical impacts of climate change from a financial stability perspective, there have only been one or two instances uh, that I'm aware of where a financial institution was completely rendered insolvent due to 
a climate-related natural disaster. So one example is the Merced Insurance Company in California in, in the wake of, of uh, one of the really massive uh, fires in recent years. However, on balance, this is this is not something that, as of yet, rendering large swaths of the financial sector insolvent. However, I think looking forward, as we can see, there should be an assumption that risks are going to significantly increase and the impacts of climate-related natural disasters and physical events, both from a kind of shock and also a trend perspective, are going to increase very, very significantly, even under scenarios of really rapid decarbonization. So, you know, we are experiencing a given level of climate-related disruption. A lot of the physical impacts of climate change are you know, being concentrated in emerging economies. And we are kind of just starting to see what the impacts could look like in developed countries. I mean, there's a huge amount of discussion on transition risk, but the complexities of physical risk they make it hard to get a portfolio-level view of what that looks like. Yeah. And, you know, physical risk is just physically what is in existence today. And transition risk is what do we need to build in the future to be able to decarbonize? And so one is present looking and one is future looking. But when we start talking about these global geographical risks and we're talking about houses along the coasts or, you know, buildings being destroyed by fires, you're working on a very global multinational stakeholders, multi-organizational stakeholders, the UN uh, environmental program that you used to be a part of. When you're working at such a broad high level, how granular do you need to be on the ground in order to be able to make these decisions? It's important to consider you know, how the global agenda be it within the you know, formal multilateral system or through you know, the work of, of different coalitions, how that really filters through it to, to change the jurisdictional levels and on the ground. In that respect, it's, it's understandable that the work of, for instance, the Basel Committee, as it would approach climate change risks, is probably going to be quite high level and um, necessarily so, considering that these risks are going to manifest differently. Uh, across different jurisdictions, which would be the, you know, the members of that body. So similarly as well with you know, the work of the NGFS, the, the leadership group of central banks and supervisors, what they're trying to do is really set out a framework for how uh, supervisors can assess these risks that is relevant across all jurisdictions uh, and then develop materials and tools that can support those supervisors in working through really what it means at their you know, jurisdictional level. So taking a worked example here, NGFS has developed a set of reference scenarios to support scenario analysis activities by supervisors. So a set of uh, scenarios for how physical and transition risks may evolve going into the future towards 2050 uh, that they would then apply uh, in exercises to examine how regulated financial institutions uh, may be exposed to risks, how they may be responding from a strategic perspective. The NGFS has released a first version of these uh, materials. They're just about to release a second version, and, and the focus of the second version is, is exclusively to this issue that you're raising, which is more clear uh, application uh, at, at jurisdictional levels, higher granularity on, on different types of physical risks, so really making it real in that jurisdiction 
ideally what this work can can do, recognizing the uncertainties, is, is inspire thinking within regulated institutions on where their risks really lie, which then can then influence engagement with their clients. So if you are a bank participating in an exercise, you can understand or you could infer that there are substantial physical risks or potential transition risks uh, building up. That can then help inform your strategy engagement with your clients to then drive granular localized changes um, that can drive greater resilience. And just quick clarification, NGFS is the Network for Greening the Financial Systems, which is a coalition of central bank regulators to be able to try to understand how to green the financial systems from the central bank's point of view. And when we start talking about standards and disclosures and taxonomy, and you're talking central banks, do you see any one of these financial subsectors more advanced than others in terms of their sustainable finance thinking and approach? I would say that the industry that has the longest history dealing with environmental risk is definitely the insurance sector. And this goes back many hundreds of years and is really kind of at the core of, of the insurance system's DNA. I mean, looking uh, back a number of decades, I think a really landmark moment was Hurricane Andrew, which catalyzed a huge investment in the sector in probabilistic modeling for large-scale tropical storm and hurricanes, which were really significant drivers of risk. And, and that was necessary for these firms to be able to appropriately price risks. Look, looking within the insurance sector, it, just to clarify, there, there is, of course, differentiation in terms of whether or not you may be more of a property and casualty insurer, where there would be a need to clearly price risks for different types of environmental phenomena versus a life insurer, which would be looking at how Climate risks may be affecting uh, mortality rates or increases in prevalence of different types of diseases. Looking to the institutional investment sphere, this is probably where in, in the late 90s, early 2000s, the awareness of kind of an ethical investing imperative considering environmental damage began to take shape. But it was really, I think, the advent of this focus on the carbon bubble, stranded assets, et cetera, that really shaped how the energy system could be affected by climate change and the shift towards a low-carbon economy associated with that and, and really translating that into financial terms. I would say the, the sector that is probably been the slowest to get going, but now is maybe working really at the fastest rate on this agenda is the global banking sector. For a long time, I think the focus in the banking sector was largely from a kind of project finance, you know, due diligence perspective. But now I think many major banks, universal banks, or also investment banks are engaged across so many sectors of the economy. There's an understanding that you know, they may be exposed in a wide variety of different ways. In the you know, institutional investment sphere, especially for pension funds with, you know, long-term investment horizons, this has really brought in their view of what the future may hold and how they may need to adapt their portfolios to deliver returns over that long-term time horizon. So when you look at these different stakeholder groups, they all came to climate change from a completely different point of view. The insurance from climate risk, the investors from stranded assets, central banks for systemic risk, so on and so forth. Do you notice if there are, quote, translation issues between these sectors that they try to grapple with a common problem of climate change? Oh, definitely. If there's one thing that I have heard 
important more than ever in many years of engaging on sustainable finance. It's the call to find more effective ways to translate the analytical approaches of certain sectors to challenges in other sectors. So there is a question of how insurance sector techniques to look at physical risks to be implied in banking sector, uh, how long-term investment thinking and, and strategizing from the investment space could be applied elsewhere as well. And in many cases, we have seen that certain institutions that may be very advanced on one side of this agenda may be really not so active on the other. So there is a need to really, and I think a recognition of the strategic benefit of trying to uh, approach this challenge as an integrated effort. Where we are seeing uh, some of the greatest challenges right now is really what it means to be net zero. So what does it mean to be net zero for an investor? That may be comparatively, definitely not easy, but uh, maybe an area where there is you know, some clear uh, channels through which you can be actively decarbonizing your portfolio. Uh, you know, what does it mean to be net zero for a bank? And what scope of the business is that relevant to? Is it relevant to absolutely everything? Or is it relevant to you know, one or set or another of the, the portfolios? And now, just recently, what does it mean to be a, a net zero insurer? And there has recently been an initiative uh, launched by the United System in this sphere. So both looking uh, from the investor perspective, but also from the underwriting perspective, really, you know, what does that look like? You know, a reflection I have of our conversation so far is that much of the language is really risk-based. And that's partially because much of this grows out of the insurance sector. Much of this grows out of stranded assets and looking at the risks of money not coming back, financial flows not returning. Where do you see activities within the opportunity space of people saying, actually, there's things that we can do today that's better, that's more climate friendly, that we can also engage with for the long term? Definitely. Well, uh, the opportunity associated with the low carbon transition will be the largest economic opportunity the world has ever seen. There's no, no doubt about that. We're already seeing evidence of that in many uh, areas of the financial system and looking at the investment sphere, there is a huge upswell in demand, both from institutional investors and retail investors for more sustainable investment solutions. So people really want to see how their capital could be put to work on this agenda. In the banking sector, there's been a huge upswell in the underwriting and issuance of sustainability-linked debt and credit products, definitely green bonds here have the longest history, but now uh, we're seeing many types of, of instruments that are both use of proceeds focused, but also kind of sustainability linked that are driving change in capital investment and uh, operational practices of, uh, of firms across the economy. And then finally, again, from, from an insurance perspective, I think there's a huge need to use the insights of that sector to enhance thinking around resilience investment in broader risk transfer at multiple levels, be that for households, uh, small business, corporates, and ultimately governments. You know, what we see as the challenges associated with really unlocking those opportunities, some of these are challenges pertain to specific aspects of climate or sustainability. For instance, the uh, financing of emerging technologies or, or those that are kind of at an earlier stage in their development. From what we're hearing, you know, the demand from the largest pools of capital in the financial system are, you know, for sustainable investment opportunities has never really never been greater. And so here, you know, tying back to uh, this question of 
defining what is green and, and consistency across markets, that becomes all the more important to ensure that what an institutional investor in one jurisdiction may seek to be financing and really how that can be delivered in the ground. And I think that's a very good point. We can think of finance as effectively an enabling sector because it enables the real economy, which is the workhorse essentially that's generating the emissions, but also providing us with our products and things that we want to consume. In some ways, that taxonomy is a way of understanding how the real economy is green versus not green so that the financial flows as the enabling sector knows where to direct its funds. And we've heard a number of people on this podcast, whether it's the telecommunications sector, the legal profession, accounting professions, these are all fundamentally just the enabling sectors. They themselves are not the fundamental real economies, but yet they too have a role in enabling that green and sustainable future. I, indeed. And I think really that is what the financial sector is best placed to do. This point we were just mentioning on tying back to defining what is green, there's both a need to kind of understand what is green now, but also what needs to be green in the future. And I think some of the challenges that we're seeing with the development of uh, an implementation of uh, taxonomies in different jurisdictions is the differences in, in how policy instruments are kind of considering that transition factor. The development of, of clear guidelines to understand, you know, what a transition bond for an oil company or an energy company should look like in a given jurisdiction emerges as really a critical. I mean, I think here the you know focus on transition finance definitely has some sensitivities. You know, there is concern of greenwashing associated with that. But I mean, fundamentally, delivering on climate change is not only financing new energy and new kind of low emission sources of energy. It is also phasing down existing sources of, em of emissions in the economy. Unless there is a a huge impact made in the coming years on the expectations for further development of fossil fuel infrastructure and really shifting that thinking in, in terms of energy vectors. It will be very, very hard to deliver on climate goals. And that's why I think there is a, a real need to think about not only a core, very high standard for what should be considered exclusively green versus what is not, rather a need to focus on a more kind of integrated view of these are the core sectors that need to transition globally, uh, and what are the types of instruments that can help really shape that view so that what is considered uh, as, as a robust sort of transition strategy and instruments to support that strategy in one market can be considered as relevant and equivalent to those in others. So when we start bringing time into the element, time introduces uncertainty, and uncertainty is the fundamental aspect of risk. So when you're starting to look at these different time cycles that we've talked about, whether it's 30-year cycles to quarterly cycles, where is there a lot of uncertainty today that the financial sector is grappling with? Well, definitely the further out you look, the greater the uncertainty will be. And so the challenge that most financial institutions are, are grappling with is, is translating what a long-term kind of future world end state would mean for them today, and then maybe what that transition needs to, to look like going forward. Thinking out to 2050, you know, one could envision a 
completely net zero aligned world with somewhat minimal physical risk impacts or uh, a world in which there has been very little action or no action taken. And we really are facing that hothouse world risk in which there are significant disruptions to the global economy, massive reduction in global GDP, definitely an outcome that no one wants to see happen. But I think looking at the differences between those two future states and really, you know, what does uh, success look like uh, for the bank in driving towards that transition involves an assumption of certain aspects of uncertainty as kind of inherent in that process. So there will always be, you know, known unknowns. But I think what's now really emerging as, as the most interesting aspect is kind of trying to think through, you know, what are the unknown unknowns in, in this whole uh, equation? And what are the kind of factors that could have a significant impact on the firm's ability to deliver on a strategy, both within what the firm has control over, but other kind of exogenous factors that could uh, affect the transition. I mean, a number of examples here that I, I see really require further research. One is the potential for insurance pricing and availability to affect the banking system's capacity to extend credit. So this is an area definitely where central banks and supervisors are, are looking. Looking more, more broadly at the role of innovation and the potential for different types of technologies to either enable certain sectors to transition or whether or not there would be significant and rapid shifts in, in consumer preferences. Finally, I think it's really important to ground the conversation in the realization that the solutions that we need to address climate change are really available right now in most markets. And uh, the role of the financial sector is really critical in ensuring that those innovations can be delivered at scale. And this is contingent on a whole range of factors, including policies uh, that will be relevant for the real economy. But looking forward, what gives me hope is that the more jurisdictions that are setting net zero goals, scaling up you know, NDCs, even though they may not be immediately aligned with 1.5 degrees, that reduces the potential policy uncertainty. The more that we go forward, the more that climate risks may, may mount, that also reduces the uncertainty around the potential transition pathway. So definitely a need to find a way to continue walking forward, even though the path is not immediately clear, recognizing that there is a destination that we all need to get towards. So let's think back to your days as a student studying environmental change here at Oxford or undergraduate in Copenhagen or even earlier than that. Where do you see you first getting exposed to sustainability as the field that you wanted to dedicate your career into? That would probably be in my undergraduate uh, studies at the University of British Columbia, where I managed to have the great opportunity to uh, do some applied research on climate risk perceptions within the media and public opinion on, on climate change risk. But definitely the main exposure and the exposure to the entire field of sustainable finance uh, was at uh, the University of Oxford and, and was really lucky to have the opportunity to be working with colleagues at the Smith School, Ben Caldicott, uh, Gordon Clark, uh, and other great uh, professors on questions of what the you know, entire agenda on stranded assets could mean, uh, what policy responses could be implemented, and, and how the private sector could take some strategic actions in that space. And I think that that entire process, both the you know going through the formal education, but also the kind of informal education associated with being in that network of Oxford and being able to leverage off that 
for contacts uh, for research projects that would be, you know, at very high levels in, in the financial system in London, other jurisdictions was was really foundational for development of my uh, future career. Could you elaborate just really briefly on what you found at that intersection of media and climate change in uh, the public? Sure. So uh, that piece focused on whether or not public opinion of climate change was was kind of affected by weather anomalies or also published news articles and opinion pieces about it. So trying to kind of see whether or not there was uh, a perception of climate change as, as problematic on the basis of whether or not the weather was unseasonal or also what people were, were saying about it in the media. Fast forward to today, what do you consider to be your primary skill or the most important skill you have? I would say the uh, the capacity to work with a wide range of different stakeholders and orient them towards a common goal and deliver evidence-based research and analysis, analysis to, to substantiate the collective action of different groups of, of stakeholders. And so this has been applied in the policy sphere, working with central banks and supervisors, in the private sector, working with executives at banks and insurance companies. And that was a skill that, that really came out of many aspects of my education at, at Oxford and also working at Oxford after I graduated for, for some time. And I think that Looking forward, it's it's widely recognized that multi-stakeholder collaboration is going to be critical to solving the climate challenge. It's something which is transboundary, cross-sectoral. The more that we can think about how to build up groups of like-minded people that want to do catalytic work, the more likely we are to be able to address this very challenging global risk that we face. I'm, I'm really grateful for having the opportunity to build that skill and, and, and learn from, from those that are, are very proficient at it uh, through, my, through my work at Oxford. And so then to a current student or an early career professional, what skill or expertise do you encourage them to learn? Well, maybe for, maybe for a student, I, I would say just really unleash your curiosity and you know, use that time, you know, in whatever institution you, you're in to think broadly and develop uh, connections that you may have not otherwise thought would be would be beneficial. And um, that will definitely pay off uh, in terms of understanding different perspectives and uh, learning all sorts of new things that you may have otherwise not, not sought to do so when you initially uh, uh, signed up for whatever course of study you may be in. So I would say that that would be one. Uh, and for an early uh, a career professional, I would say maybe a slightly different version, which would be a network and try to apply yourself in as, as many different contexts as you can, but never forget the real motivation that's driving you. And if that's working on the climate crisis, that's great. If that is addressing social justice, that is that is great. If that is designing great products, that is also great. Ensure that that motivation is is always, you know, your North Star and, and don't deviate from that. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure to chat. Thank you so much, Jimmy. Great to be with you. Thank you for listening to the Levers of Exchange podcast, where we share ideas, knowledge, and best practices for achieving a sustainable future. I'm the host, Jimmy Gia, and the music is by Sean Hart. Thanks again to the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship at the Said Business School, Oxford University, for sponsoring Season 3 of this podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast for new episodes and share with a friend. Please visit our website, 
at www.leversofexchange.com for additional episodes, books, and other resources. Thank you again. And remember, the cleantech economy will require everyone's participation. How can we exchange ideas today to help you find your role tomorrow?